The human condition is caught between two poles. I'm part of the world and I'm separate from the world. But I believe philosophy becomes true when it's anchored in the intimacy of your life. I think within the concrete. Mm -hmm. I remember my students saying to me, Rabbi Hartman, I want you to know, but don't get upset with me. I became an atheist. I said, when did you become an atheist? He said, Wednesday. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a remarkable thing. What were your Tuesday? You were a believer, right? And what happened on Thursday? I said, is there any difference between the way you lived when you were a believer and when you became an atheist? And that's the criterion for me. The Champion of Adaptive Judaism. That was the headline of the New York Times obituary for Rabbi David Hartman, who died a year ago this week. He was called a public philosopher for the Jewish people. He was a charismatic and unusual figure in Israeli society, an Orthodox rabbi who both loved and challenged traditional Judaism from the inside. He did this as a sacred obligation to his understanding of the core values Judaism brings into the world for all of humanity. He became an activist, for example, of the inclusion of women in Orthodox ritual and practice, seeing this not as a matter of or for women, but about the character of the God one worships. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Rabbi David Hartman led a modern Orthodox synagogue in Montreal before moving with his wife and five children to Israel in the aftermath of the Six-Day War of 1967. And in Jerusalem over three decades ago, he founded the Shalom Hartman Institute, named after his father. This modern campus is built with stones from the nearby Judean hills. It hosts secular Israeli military officers, Arab thinkers, and liberal and traditional rabbis. I interviewed Rabbi Hartman there in 2011. Where I'd like to start is truly at the beginning for, of you. Um, were you raised in an Orthodox family? Yes. So this has been your tradition all your life? No, I've been... I was brought up in a very Hasidic family, and they went to Orthodox schools. I was a nice religious boy mm -hmm. <laughs> until I began to read, <laughs> <laughs> and that all changed. <laughs> what did you read that changed you? William James, John Dewey, American Pragmatism. They grabbed me. Also. Peter Berger mm. and Brown. And how, how did those kinds of writers start to change your Jewish sensibility? No, you see, I was already moving away from conventional orthodoxy. I wasn't satisfied with the answers. And with William James, I, I met a finite God which was a pleasure. <laughs> so God was limited. Because if I looked at the world, I mean, he's sure it's not omnipotent. Because if that's what he, his power is, then he's sure is a very weak God. So in other words, I could never build a theology ignoring the lived reality. I always, in my own crazy way, 
I would go through, when it was a plane crash or a car crash, and I'm told that there was a bride and groom on the plane. And I pictured what was their conversation. Where are we going to live? How many children do you think we should have? And then planning and thinking. And then snaff, snafu. It's like laughing at human beings' attempt to take life seriously. Either God has a sense of humor or he's not there. Hmm. He's there and not there. So in some way, we have to develop new metaphors, new images of how we think about God. It's not enough to say Judaism is the religion of the law and we have the law so we know what we're supposed to do. That doesn't work for me. Because if the law doesn't point to a God, then what is it all about? You know, much of your writing, and certainly this latest book you've written, The God Who Hates Lies, is really engaging. It's an intra-Jewish conversation that you are uh, aspiring for, leading, provoking. Um, and it's it's a it's provocative and critical, but from a perspective of loving and living deeply inside the tradition. I, I'd like for us to talk about that, and but be aware of the fact that um, that people who are listening, say my listeners in the United States, aren't don't know the dynamics of this internal conversation. And also, I think when Jews are critical of each other, when this critical Israeli conversation is transmitted. Um, that loving and living in the depths piece of it is lost. So I'm just wondering if we can kind of go inside that, that conversation that you're part of. Yeah, um, well, I, that's, you see, I see my identity as deeply tied to a family. I'm very deeply Jewish. Mm-hmm. My mannerisms, whatever it may be. I mean, I was brought up with Jewish music, my father, the institute was called after him. Mm. He was very poor, but he celebrated the Shabbat with joy. So I have deep memories, Jewishly. So I have never had the desire to leave. I had the desire that it should be better. So my criticism grows from love. Mm-hmm. It's like I was once told, don't be critical as your mother-in-law who enjoys to find out things that are lacking in you. <laughs> right. But be critical out of compassion, out of real love for what you think the people could be. And as I suffer that, because on one level I want to feel empathy, intimacy with this people, with its history, with its longing, and I know its vulnerabilities, its weaknesses, it's psychological problems of wanting to be loved. They, they want so much to be loved. And it's not working. And they don't know why does the world hate them. What do we do? So they used to say it's Christ killers. No, it's not that. It's much deeper. And on a certain level, Jews are very aggressive and powerful, and intellectually. But deep down, they are very frightened. You were a, a congregational rabbi for 16 years, is that right, before you 
came to Israel in Montreal. Um, you wrote that you, at that time, spoke excitedly about the religious significance of a society not only shaped by the Jewish people or even a Jewish ethos in a general sense, but organized politically around the creative contemporary application of biblical and rabbinic categories of social justice. And then you encountered the reality of... <laughs> Life, right? Right. And the human condition. Yes, like you wake up in the morning, you hear that a family were murdered. So how, how do you live with that? You know? And Israelis just want the world to say, we feel your pain. They're so hungry for acknowledgement. They're so hungry for human responses to them. See, I felt that Jews entered history now affected by the totality of life, economics, politics, medical ethics. In other words, Judaism was not going to be a religion of the synagogue or the kosher home or kosher bakeries. It was going to be the sitzim labim of, uh, of the lived reality of people in business and violence. And I remember the Quakers coming to see me, they wanted to know about my views of power, you know, Quakers. Mm -hmm. So I said, if you have power, you can have a moral argument. If you're powerless, there's no moral argument. So if we want to engage the Palestinians in a moral argument of how to live together, then we can only negotiate if we're strong. So I have no difficulty, even though I'm not a militant person. I have no difficulty of, of Israel being strong because I feel strength invites discussion. Mm. Weakness invites manipulation. Mm. Mm. And I wonder if your uh, perspective as a, or if the sensibility you bring to this as a philosopher also, I mean, because really what you're talking about is the human condition the difficulty of the human condition then in the context of this difficult national and religious identity. Well, that's the... The human condition is caught between two poles. I'm part of the world and I'm separate from the world. I'm a member of a family that is not typical of the world and yet I want to embrace all of humanity. Because to me, the idea of God creates the widest range of empathy for human beings. Beloved is man created in the image of God. Now, on that level, another, but I believe philosophy is, becomes true when it's anchored in the intimacy of your life. Hmm. I, I, I think within the concrete. Mm -hmm. That's what James and Dewey did for me. Mm. What's the cash value of an idea? And I remember my students saying to me, Rabbi Hartman, I want you to know, but don't get upset with me. I became an atheist. I said, when did you become an atheist? He said, Wednesday. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a remarkable thing. What were your Tuesday? You were a believer, right? And what happened on Thursday? I said, is there any difference between the way you lived when you were a believer and when you became an atheist. And that's the criterion for me. 
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, my interview with the late American-Israeli philosopher and rabbi David Hartman. Your daughter, um, Tova. Tova, is part of what some people call the Orthodox feminist revolution. Some language you used about that, about your how your thinking changed towards this, towards the thinking about women and Judaism. You said was when you realized she was not merely fighting for women's rights, but for an honest, authentic Judaism. That this Correct. was not about women, right. but about the type of God you could worship. Correct. In other words, I Tova once said to me, Abba, the problem with women in Judaism is not a woman's problem. It's your problem. It's the Judaism that you want to be committed to. Now, do you want to be committed to a Judaism in which the woman is not a person? She could be a great surgeon during the week in Hadassah. She comes to shul. She's not part of the minion. She's not part of the quorum. I remember a rabbi calling me. He says, David, what should I do? I, I, I come to the shul in the morning, and some people have to say Kaddish, which is, requires a quorum of 10 men. And he says, well, I only get nine, and I get seven women. And when orthodoxy denies the personhood, it commits spiritual suicide. It is blind to the human condition, to the dignity of human beings. I can't see a Judaism that flourishes and considers the woman in a second rate, very limited legal powers, etc. And this is a discussion you're having within Orthodox Judaism Correct. in Israel. That's the family. <laughs> Once I became aware of the depth, and I'm grateful to Tova mm -hmm. for educating me, because she's a real expert in gender studies. Once it hit me, I couldn't accept all the apologetics. And of course, this is not just a Jewish phenomenon. I know. We have, this is, there are aspects of Christianity, of all the traditions that have this. So, um, does, and, and you know this tradition, you know it in its depths, you know its texts and its teachings. I mean, does Orthodox Judaism have the capacity to make this transition? Yes. As a tradition? One of the things is, I wrote a chapter in my book, A Heart of Many Rooms, Judaism as an interpretive tradition. Interpretation is not just for sake of the law, it's to define the reality of the religious world. Mm -hmm. Who is God? Well, who, depends who God on, is, right? Who is God? Mm -hmm. It depends on how you interpret. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring God back into the interpretive tradition. Because people will say, Hartman is talking about God so much. What happened to him? What's this God <laughs> intoxicated stuff? They'll get scared. So what I'm saying is, I want to have God in all aspects of reality. And to have that consciousness that you're, you're living in the presence of God should define your moral action. In other words, I don't need legalisms mm. to bring about changes. Mm. Mm. Okay. You got that? In other words, I don't need this legal mm -hmm. shenanigans. Mm -hmm. In other words, I want to bring the person in existential confrontation with with the God consciousness. And then I think you're saying that the legalisms then must be reconstructed 
reinterpreted. Correct. According, in accordance with that, rather than the other way around. That's correct. That, rather than that we interpret God by way of the legalisms. This is, uh, I'm a mother, too. I have two children. And uh, I, I, I love this. I love it that it's your daughter who brought this to you. And I, 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 I've heard other stories of, of this across the years, uh, Christian and J- Jewish stories, you know, p- children who, who forced their parents to revisit the teachings. Um, and I just wondered if, I wondered if I thought you, you might have an answer to this, whether the, do, does, the, does the tradition have teachings about how we should be open to being changed and taught by our children? Well, see, the point, the tradition has models of people changing their mind. Mm-hmm. The tradition has models of the vitality of disagreements, that one point of view is not the truth. And the notion of philosophy is not truth, but possibilities. Philosophy opens up windows. It doesn't give you final truths. And I want to have a Judaism that opens up windows. You could breathe. You want to convert to Judaism? Try it. (laughs) (laughs) Try it. See how it fits you. Walk around in the street, say, I'm Jewish. See how you feel about it. In other words, I'm, I have a great respect for experimentation, the learning from experience. And what experience could give you, no major work of philosophy can give you. I want the human being to be touched by another human being. So as I... I conduct my life of conversation, and as I look at the world, I feel um, that the teach- teachings about the other, how to encounter the other, how to engage the other, how to treat the other, should be, should be a great gift to the 21st century that our Correct. tradition, that, we, that the world needs to learn in a whole new way how to live with the other. It seems to me that that you've really engaged with that teaching of the other in Judaism, and that, that that even flowed into your thinking about women and your changing idea about women. Correct. And I wonder how you think about that teaching of the other in terms of the Palestinian people and that this, this life in Jerusalem and in, in Israel and the Middle East. That's a pain. That it's cool, hard. It's so painful. Yes, and I remember NBC came to see me they say, we heard that you've, you've changed in your attitude towards the Palestinians, you know, that you've become now militant. So I went to Tom Broker, who came to see me. I said, it depends what, part, what time of day. In the morning, I hate the Palestinians. Four hours later, I'm much calmer. I don't want to hurt them. I want to live with them. In other words... I'm constantly moved up and back. When my family gets killed and my family is frightened to go to sleep at night, I get angry. I have a lot of anger in me. But part of my tradition is to learn how to control that anger. And I don't know if they really want to live with me. I'm not certain that there's anything we can do that would make it possible for them to feel we acknowledge their dignity. 
And, and there are other there are other sides of this, right? I mean, we were last night at a dinner with Yossi Klein Halevi, your colleague, and um, some American young journalism students from California. And they had just spent part of the day in East Jerusalem, and they were just observing the the contrast between uh, the 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 economic um, dignity of Palestinian neighborhoods and Israeli neighborhoods, right? And they, so they were also, so, I mean, this is another side of this. What I would like to get a better sense of is there's this dynamic of, of a threat, right? And then there's the question of how you apply the teachings of the other to just basic treatment of Palestinian, even citizens of Israel, right? Or, that is a I whole pray dynamic. for the well-being of Palestinians. I have no joy at all if a Palestinian suffers. That's not where I am. But I say to them, please, we could really build a very nice society together. Can't you try? Why do you have to feel that there's a, we're trying to Jew you, as they say? Why can't you trust us for a little while? A little while, 20 years. I mean, we could flourish together beautifully. It could be an example to the world about living from with the other, really living. You're right. I can't fool myself. I have no other place to go. I lost too many people, German Jews who trusted, you know, and I saw what happened. So I don't trust the world. I want to trust the world. I say, Hartman, come on, get it straight. Depends what time of the day you ask me. Right. It's, it's living with this tremendous tense emotions. Right. Love, hate, ambivalences are phenomenal. Right. I want to talk about another, um, you know, just shift gears, another interesting thing that you're bringing about that I've heard about senior military officers who are coming here for study study and bringing real world ethical spiritual questions and then you're meeting that with the tradition I love that I love them I think for people outside Israel what would be surprising is how unusual and groundbreaking that is Right. Beg your pardon. I think for people outside Israel who don't who don't know the dynamics here, that it might be surprising that that's groundbreaking. No, I think this is for me my most beautiful experience in Israel. I look at them and I say, you know, you're the true rabbis in Israel because you are affecting all your troops. They they woke up that Israelism and nationalism ain't enough. That can't satisfy the soul of a people. And they, the soldiers themselves say, we have to know why we're fighting. What is it about? Why are we connected to this land? Why are we connect, how do we connect ourselves to Jewish history? And they are marvelous. They, the best audience in the world. I mean, I love them. What kinds of questions do they bring? What kinds of what, what kinds of questions do they bring? What What do they want to talk about? They want to know: Do you accept me as a Jew? 
even though I'm not observant. Mm. How do you look upon me? I say, you're not secular. But everyone tells me I'm secular. I say, you can't be secular because you're willing to die for the continuity of Jewish history. That's very deeply religious. So immediately there's a certain sense that, okay, I'm inside. I'm not an outsider. Take me on a trip. Mm. Tell me about Abraham. Tell me about Moses. Tell me about Maimonides. Come on, let's walk together. And I'm open to any questions you may have. I mean, they'll ask me, why is it my Russian friend who was here and he got killed and they didn't know if they could bury him in a Jewish cemetery? So the question they all ask themselves, if they're willing to accept him to die for this country, they can't bury him as a Jew. Those, in other words, there's such a disharmony, a fracture between the rabbinic establishment or the so-called public voices of Judaism and what really is true Judaism. And they're looking for true Judaism, something they could love and respect. Mm. It's, it's very beautiful to see. Mm. They want to respect it. Mm. It's not like my congregation in Montreal when I was a rabbi. <laughs> I mean, here it's, a, it's the nicest audience I could speak to mm. because they're so hungry. That's what kills me. I know the country is open to a renaissance of spiritual moral values, and the rabbis kill it. Mm. We have a rabbinate that has absolutely no connection to the people, no understanding of Jewish history, no understanding of the Zionist revolution. You've, um, you've written about and I think this absolutely comes through that you criticize Israel as a as a parent or Jews as a parent, you know, engages with the child. It's a loving uh, criticism, and you've written that your that the backdrop to that is daily joy and celebration. Would you say some more about you know how the the totality of this relationship you have, your ideas, what you find lacking, your sense of possibility. I find lacking joy, depth, critical reflection, changing your mind and not being scared to think new thoughts. That's what I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. And it ain't there. <laughs> you wrote, um, I propose that a core meaning of the state of Israel is precisely the will of the Jewish people to remain in history despite overwhelming evidence of the risks involved. Tell me what you're saying there. Well, you know the risks. Yeah, I know the risks. <laughs> it's the staying in history. The staying here. We're vulnerable to Syria, Iran, Hezbollah. I mean, they don't tell me, send me love notes. They tell me that they're going to get new forms of destruction and they could wipe out Tel Aviv in a few hours. I look at this institute, I worked so hard to build it. I had to raise all the money myself. My son, Daniel, now came and inherited the throne. But I worked very hard to build what I built. 
I don't want to lose it. <laughs> so I, don't, I always have these nightmares of bombs falling away here. It's just, I don't know, it's the fragile quality of life drives me crazy. Today you're here, today you smile, today you make love, and tomorrow you don't know what's going to be. You know, that non-consistency. And a new king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Mm -hmm. That's my vision of history. No matter what you did, they forgot. Look what we've contributed to civilization. Yeah, okay. But that's for yesterday's news. You can listen again and share this conversation with Rabbi David Hartman through our website, onbeing.org. There you can also find all the shows that came out of our 2011 production trip to Israel and the West Bank. They included Palestinian philosopher Sari Naseba, Israeli journalist Yossi Klein Halevi, Mohammed Darousha, an Arab civic leader of Israel, and Voices from the Ida Camp, a Palestinian refugee camp and neighborhood in Bethlehem. Together, they reveal many faces of Israeli and Palestinian identity and humanity. Again, that's at onbeing.org. Coming up, David Hartman on Hope in a Hopeless God. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, revisiting my 2011 conversation with philosopher and rabbi David Hartman. I interviewed him at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, which he founded. He died a year ago this week at the age of 81. Rabbi Hartman was a revered, if provocative, figure in Israeli society. He convened rare encounters of Jews from different backgrounds, men and women, at his institute. These have included, for example, a project of religious and ethical reflection with officers of the Israeli army. Israeli Jews, as Rabbi Hartman described it, walk a constant tightrope between vulnerability and responsibility. One of the large themes in your thinking and writing is how Jewish sovereignty, how the state, of the fact of the state of Israel, in fact, challenges Judaism. Absolutely. Because it says to you, stop looking at pots and pans. If it's dairy or meat, take your face out of the pot and look. Look at the society. The state of Israel... Gives me a whole range of responsibility. Right. And I can't now goof off. I can't blame the Goyim. <laughs> can't blame the Gentiles for the world as it is. It's my world. What type of medicine do you have? What type of treatment of the aged? What type of treatment of immigrants? You are now have power. And power has to be measured by responsibility. And a sovereign state gives Jews the opportunity 
to make Judaism a total way of life that breathes dignity and resp responsiveness to human beings. Hmm. Sovereignty is an instrument for moral excellence. Hmm. And I think you're also saying that, that the state of Israel is really a new chapter for Jews, even beyond the, the biblical narrative. Correct. Correct. Which does not have Jews in charge of their fate. Right. And that, that in fact, then you are writing a new chapter of the tradition, that that's part of this responsibility you talked about that may go beyond the bounds of what was possible even to think about or live into. That's what this whole institute is about. Mm -hmm. In this institute, Arabs tell me when they come, they said they feel dignified. The workers feel dignified. No one pulls rank on another person. No thinker will ever be told that that's heretical, you can't say that. A total freedom of ideas, cross-cultural discussions with theologians, Muslims, Christians, philosophers, secularists. Come on, world, come inside. We want to meet you. In other words, strangely enough, Israel, which is so much more a family home, makes it possible to be more universal than living in Manhattan. Hmm. In other words, here, I meet people out of a sense of dignity. I have roots. I have a history. I can now meet your history. You're not denying my identity. Like when Arafat said, we were never there in Jerusalem. We never had anything to do with the temple. My anger was not, you know, that he was nasty. You denied my memory. Mm. And if you deny my memory, you deny my dignity. This is a return to memory. Now, how do we deal with this memory? Narcissistically, triumphantly, arrogantly? Or we say, now that I have my memory, tell me about yours. It's a different ballgame. Hmm. I could listen now. I have a place. I could sit down and talk with you. I have no difficulty allowing another voice into my consciousness. And that's what Israel should be about. It's not about that. I don't want to lie to you. I, I love Israel not for what it is, but what it could be. I want that to be known. Israel is a possibility, and I live with possibilities. I didn't close the final chapter. The final chapter of Jewish history is still going to be written, and it's going to grow here. And it's my task as a teacher, a philosopher, to make it possible for more, more and more people to study, to understand. If you look at the seminar I'm giving on the meaning of a chosen people, mm. I want to deal with that honestly. Right. How, how do you understand the core of Jewish teaching or the God, the God you want to worship? How do you understand the uh, message that is there about pluralism? You know, what... What is, what, is the, what is the Jewish contribution to 
a truly pluralistic world that we live in now. The contribution is that there's no idea which ends the discussion. If there's an idea that closes the discussion, that's not a fruitful thought. Mm. Dialogue is what creates possibility for more discussion. Mm. And my tradition taught me when they said Hillel and Shammai were always fighting with each other and disagreeing. And they say, let's ask God who's right. Is it Hillel right or Shammai right? So God said, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. So, I mean, God, I mean, you have a multiple conversation going on in yourself. And there's an old Midrash that says when he gave the Torah to Sinai, he gave it with multiple interpretations. There's never been a single truth, a dogmatic truth a single way of reading reality. We, we meet reality through the visions of other people. And my tradition is filled with that. Hmm. The whole Talmud is that. Right. The whole it's a demonstration Tal of that. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, to be a Jew is to say, why are you right? <laughs> right. You're going to have to explain to me. Right. Right. And I'm going to argue with you. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, my conversation with the late Israeli rabbi and philosopher David Hartman. talk to you about time your your understanding of time which i would even say palpably feels different here in israel time it feels i mean i'm just saying even 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 being present in this land it feels different now you write about this it comes up in your writing not necessarily as an isolated subject but even when you talk about writing this, writing a new chapter of Jewish history, you experience that as a matter of generations, right? That you're, you're, you're part of what will be a long process. Also, this process of applying tradition to modern society as that as even the meaning of what modern society is continues to change. Um, how, do you, how do you think about the value of time, the meaning of time, in terms of religious change, spiritual evolution within Judaism? There's the, there's the famous saying in the Mishnah, Lo alecha ha ligmor. It's not upon you to finish the job. <laughs> nor are you free to desist from it. And know one thing, that the master is very, very demanding. Hayom katzer. The day is short, but the work is great. I mean, in, if you went to my school, the major question was, how are you using your time? Hmm. What have you made of yourself in the gift that you've received? On one level, I hate time because it's moving. <laughs> I say, hold it, kid. I want to live a little longer. I, don't want, I, want, I want to be around. 
I love life. I love people. I don't know why. <laughs> They're not so nice. <laughs> but I have that... F when I see a little kindness of somebody, and I see a tear in his eye, it opens me up. I need people to take me out of a locked room and let me breathe alternative pictures. Interesting, never thought of it that way. And if people could go through life feeling that there's a lot that they don't know. As James said, the whole truth has not been given to one person. It's enough to be true to the section that you have. To be true to the situation of where you are and what your existential situation enables you to see. And to see a world talking that way, listening, would be nice. Mm -hmm. No? Mm -hmm. Saying it that way also, I think, makes the task feel more manageable. Psychologically, it's a great comfort to think yes. about it that way. Yes, I do. I wonder um, what comes to mind if I ask you, so you've started a lot of initiatives here. We've talked about some of them. You have a school... You're, you're training girls. I mean, you're bringing women and girls into the tradition. You, um, you're, you're doing this spiritual teaching with military officers. Um, you're also bringing Jews and rabbis of different, different Jewish traditions together in a way that's unprecedented, right? So I wonder what comes to mind if I ask you how then these experiences that you create out of your sense that something has to change, how they then give you an inform your vision, you know, teach you things that you didn't expect to learn, uh, give you new insights that are surprising. Well, they tell me, they teach me that it's not easy. Mm. You know, then sometimes you can become very glib. I don't see any dialogue in all the community. I, that's what I wanted to create was a people with discussion. That Saturday night they get together and they say, what did your rabbi say about Abraham? What did your rabbi say? How did he interpret this? And they should argue what they learned. Mm. But they don't do that. They talk, do you see the rabbi's wife, how she was dressed? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I want, I want a people that is learning. Where's the spirit that awakens you? Where's the spirit that wants you to search Find out. There's a passage in the Psalms. Yismach lev mevakshe Hashem. Joyful are those who seek God, not those who found God. In terms of your own spiritual evolution, 
how your sense of who God is has changed, what that means. What? Your sense of who God is has cha- changed and what that means. Are there... Um, My God wants me to be moral. Your God. <laughs> so, so I wonder if there are biblical passages or Talmudic teachings, images that have become more important to you over yes. time, that are important now that maybe meant nothing to you 30 years right. ago. What would those be? Ones which are radically, radical revisions of the way you think about God. What do you mean that say that God is all-powerful? His power is that he doesn't punish the wicked. He's slow to anger. What do you mean that he's awe-inspiring in the temple? There's no temple anymore. The pagans are just dancing around in the temple. Oh, it means something else. It means... If not for the awe of God, this people wouldn't have survived in history. So there was a reshaping of the meaning of the theological language to correspond to a a hopeless God. Mm. Where are you, God? Where are you hiding? So they tell the Hasidic story of the two kids were playing hide and seek. And one, one kid hid. And then he started crying. So they say, what's the matter? He says, no one is looking for me. <laughs> he says, now you know how God feels. <laughs> mm. We're not looking. I don't know what God is. The being of God but I know it's a shattering experience. It opens you to the world. It takes you out of your narcissistic ego trip and says, look, see the other. Show strength through compassion, through love, not through violence. And to be reminded each day of those achievements. It's not easy to be a religious man. I want to be religious. (laughs) I want to be religious, but I can't find anyone who could make me religious. (laughs) Who could inspire me to feel that it's worth it. But I'm still hoping. I'm still hoping. On my gravestone is going to be written, David Hartman, who wanted to be a good Jew. He wanted to. Rabbi David Hartman died on February 10th, 2013, at the age of 81. He was president emeritus of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, which he also founded. His books include The God Who Hates Lies, Confronting and Rethinking Jewish Tradition. To listen again and share this show, or to watch my entire conversation in Jerusalem with Rabbi David Hartman, go to our website, onbeing.org. And as we prepared to put this show back on the air, we called up Rabbi Hartman's daughter, Tova. I miss him. Yeah. The day before he died, Mm -hmm. I sat with him, and I was still arguing with him about (laughs) one Talmudic passage. And literally, he wasn't—and I said, Abba— 
do you agree that I was right about the place of Rabbi Akiva, this one rabbi in the tradition, in a certain Talmudic text? And people around me were saying, Tova, give up already. <laughs> but till the day before he died, we were still, I was still trying to discuss certain things with him. Hear the rest of my conversation with Tova Hartman at onbeing.org. And follow everything we do through our weekly email newsletter. Just click the newsletter link on any page at onbeing.org. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Michael Elsesser, Mariah Helgeson, Mary Sue Hannon, and Joshua Ray. Special thanks this week to Fuad Abu Ghosh, Yossi Klein Halevi, and Daniel Estrin. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org. And by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production. My conversation a few months ago with Buddhist teachers Sharon Salzberg and Robert Thurman sparked an interesting response. That was about love of enemies, and it reminded one of our producers of the story of Jack Leroy Tuller, a decorated World War II veteran. Two weeks after D-Day, Tuller was waiting with his troop in the Normandy countryside, and he decided to take out his trumpet. So I get my trumpet out, and the commander says, Jack, don't play tonight because there's one sniper left. I thought to myself, that German sniper is as scared and lonely as I am. So I thought, I'll play his love song. Dun, dun, dee, 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 dee. Jack Tuller playing his trumpet today as he played it then. And hear what happened next at onbeing.org.